You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. The full-scale war uh, that started in February drastically changed uh, all our lives, uh, as well it's changed uh, the labor sphere in Ukraine. From the Solidarity Center podcast, we'll hear about how, in the midst of war, the Ukrainian parliament is attacking worker rights. They wanted a PlayStation 4 and, like, an Xbox. They wanted you to buy it for $1,500. Yeah, because you could lease it. You spread it over a few years or whatever. Oh my. Yeah, but even if you wanted to buy it outright from them, they expected like twice as much as the retail price. That's right. And like TVs are like three grand, four grand. And it's just like, it's so gross. On the Alberta Worker Podcast, Kim Siever interviews Des Bissonette, a retail worker and activist located in Lloyd Minster. We can't get to that point because currently we can't supply our uh, electrical demand that people need in their homes. And from the Empathy Media Lab podcast, Jim Key, president of the Atomic Energy Workers Council at the United Steelworkers, talks about how nuclear energy is both good for the country's energy infrastructure as well as creating more high-paying union jobs. We at San Antonio Christian United, what we do is educate our community, we organize, and we do leadership development. On the El Cafecita del Dia podcast, Evelyn Urushia, Executive Director of Tenants and Workers United, discusses housing issues faced by working-class Latino communities in Northern Virginia. The idea was that a perfect score was 100 points. If you were Polish, you needed 50 to 55 points to qualify. If you were Irish, 55. Italians, Greeks, Spanish, and Lebanese needed 75. And uh, Jewish people needed 85 points, and they also had a separate blue form that they filled out for Jewish homeowners. Finally, on the Tales from the Ruther Library podcast, Emma Manier describes how homeowners associations in Gross Point, an affluent suburb bordering Detroit, developed a point system following the Second World War to rank and exclude prospective home buyers to maintain the community's Anglo-Christian whiteness and affluence. The point system, which ranked nativity and ethnicity, accent, skin tone, and occupation, among other measures, was dismantled in 1960, but left a pernicious legacy that continues to reverberate in the community today. A quick word before we get to the show, this is your network, and we're building it like a union organizing campaign, one show and one listener at a time. Please help us build this sonic solidarity by sharing the show. Just click on the share button. Thanks very much. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. sisters and brothers, and welcome to the Solidarity Center podcast, an interview show that highlights and celebrates the individuals working for labor rights, the freedom to form unions, and democracy across the globe. 
I'm your host, Shauna Bader-Blau. Today, we welcome back George Sandel, a labor lawyer and the legal director for Labor Initiatives, an NGO partner of the Solidarity Center and the labor movement in Ukraine that provides direct assistance to workers, like helping them get unpaid wages. So with the situation in Ukraine, uh, the full-scale war uh, that started in February drastically changed uh, all our lives, uh, as well it's changed uh, the labor sphere in Ukraine. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, instead of having uh, some greater protection of labor rights, uh, greater protection of the people who are baking bread, uh, washing dishes or cleaning the streets, uh, since the march, we uh, faced uh, the very regressive labor reform in Ukraine. In March, there were passed uh, a law that allows to uh, suspend uh, individual labor agreements uh, as well as the collective labor agreements. It already caused a lot of problems in the critical infrastructure and other enterprises. Uh, and it was uh, used by many unfair businesses as a retaliation for the labor activists. Uh, and recently, uh, Ukrainian parliament unfortunately passed a few laws uh, that will drastically narrow uh, labor rights in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, instead of uh, making this protection uh, greater uh, because like home front is uh, now uh, as as well as a front line is so important uh, to produce goods uh, to protect people's lives uh, we face the different situation uh, one of the law drafts uh, that already was signed and become a law it exclude uh, the military persons who are cons conscripted to the army of their average wage. Uh, previously, uh, by the current labor code, uh, people who serve uh, to the military, uh, they should receive their average wage on their civil position. Uh, by this law, it was cancelled. It already uh, caused an outrage uh, throughout the military community, throughout the labor experts, and so on. And it may lead to very unpredictable consequences. Uh, other law that was uh, promoted uh, before the war, like in 2021, uh, it basically ex excludes uh, all the people who are working uh, on the small and medium enterprises. In Ukraine, it's very big threshold. It's uh, 250 person from the general uh, labor legislation. And uh, it uh, phrases that uh, individual labor contract is the main basis of regulation of labor relationships on such enterprises. Uh, it doesn't cancel at all freedom of association or collective bargaining, but in fact, it neglects uh, the collective measures of uh, labor protections. We have links to resources that support the Ukrainian labor movement and to George's first appearance on this podcast in the show notes. You can follow and subscribe to the Solidarity Center podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your shows. Learn more about the Solidarity Center at SolidarityCenter.org and follow our social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
The Solidarity Center podcast is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, and our show is produced and engineered by Adam Yaffe. A special thanks to the staff of the Solidarity Center who assisted with this podcast. In more than 60 countries around the world, we work to ensure a righteous future for workers, dignity, freedom, equality, and justice. For the Solidarity Center podcast, I'm Shauna Bader-Blau. Thanks for listening. Hey, fellow workers, welcome back to the Alberta Worker Podcast. We are broadcasting from the territory of the Nitsitapi. We're also proud members of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. My name is Kim Siever, and you are tuning in to episode eight of season one of the Alberta Worker Podcast. I'm excited to welcome Des Bissonnette, an activist here in Alberta, who's going to share her life story with us. Welcome, Des, to the Alberta Worker Podcast. Thank you so much for bringing me on. This is super exciting. Um, I'm tuning in from Treaty 6 from the border city of Canada, Lloydminster. I'm about a couple skips away from Alberta right now. I'm actually in Saskatchewan. Fun fact. we, We can't have you on the podcast then. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I do work in I work in Alberta, though, still all of my jobs have been Alberta. So it's a little in my community. It's really interesting. If you live on the Saskatchewan side and work in Alberta, your life is so much cheaper than if you live in Alberta and work in Alberta. I got a job at Aaron's Furniture. You sell and lease furniture, which is the next bad job yeah. and selling furniture and leasing furniture, which is a scam. I'll I don't care. (laughs) You can come at me for that. It's a scam. They wanted a PlayStation 4 and like an Xbox. They wanted you to buy it for $1,500. What? Yeah, because you could lease it. You spread it over a few years or whatever. Oh my God. Yeah. But even if you wanted to buy it outright from them, they expected like twice as much as the retail price. That's wrong. And like TVs are like three grand, four grand. And it's just like, it's so gross how, and honestly, the worst thing I think for me was because it's Lloydminster and we're a social hub for all of these other communities. A lot of the people who were coming in to buy were people who were out of town and who were already, you know, poor and didn't have a lot of means. And on top of that, it was a lot of indigenous people. So lots of people coming in from the reserve and we were repossessing things from the reserve and we were calling people on the reserve, harassing them for payments. And that was really hard for me. I'm not from this, this area. I'm not from Onion Lake Nation, but I have friends in Onion Lake. I have friends in Frog Lake and Saddle Lake. We're going all the way out to Saddle Lake and Kahiwa and it's like three hours away. It's just because that's, they could exploit natives. Right. And, And that was our, our boss would talk about that native people are going to buy 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 it doesn't matter if we don't get all their payments because we'll get the furniture back anyway but we will buy 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 we had the highest amount in all of like western canada at the, the store here like that was the culture it was really like just not fun i didn't like it very much um oh, no. i started a second part-time job doing uh cannabis sales right after legalization had been around for like a year I think there was a new store opening up that was really bougie like it was supposed to be a lab experience so like we were (laughs) there was like a speakeasy it had like a washing machines for the front and we all had to wear like full black 
and we were supposed to be called product guides and stuff like it was basically like an apple store yeah it was very very corny you're gonna have to work um, with the was, guests yeah well we had um we had a, a cannabis I actually made it. I donated so much of my extra labor. I made like gigantic information pages about all of the different strains and terpenes and all of this shit. Like it, it was like a boutique for cannabis. It was supposed to be artistic. Our cheapest bong was $300. Like oh my. it was so bougie. And yeah, I, I was working there part-time and I ended up in the summer deciding I wanted to go do one full month of volunteer work for this Christian camp. Young, I used to do Young Life for years and years. I was a coordinator. Generally, I was all doing that on the background of all of this coordinating and going to camp once a week in the summer. But I wanted to do summer staff, which is their volunteer thing. I decided to lie to both of my jobs and say that I had to go to BC for an emergency and that I wasn't sure when I'd be back, but I'd come back at some point. And you didn't for either of them? No, I didn't. Well, you know, it was super wild because so I, I was there for almost the full month. And from errands, I got a text that I was getting fired. And I was like, over text. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay, sorry to hear that. It was nice working for you. And then they sent me $500 severance, which was great because I had wow. I'd worked for a month. I was like, oh, hell yeah. I love that. I love getting money. And then the other job actually continued to wait. And so when I got back and I told them I was back, they're just like, okay, great. Here's when you're, you're starting your shift again. Oh. So I, yeah, I just kind of transitioned back into working full time, even though I totally ditched them for an entire month and just fucked off to go do volunteer work and scrub toilets. Yeah, I was pretty fun. I honestly didn't think I'd get it back. Well, this has been great. I've really enjoyed all these great stories that you've had to share. <laughs> I hope our listeners have enjoyed them just as much. If you are interested in following the Alberta Worker, you can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can also visit our website at albertaworker.ca, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you once again to Des for joining us today. Thank you to all the listeners for joining in. And as always, solidarity. Solidarity. Welcome to the Political Economy Project with the goal of creating universal prosperity for today and future generations. My name is Evan Papp and I'm the executive producer for Empathy Media Lab, which publishes content on labor, political economy, art and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today I'm speaking with Jim Key, who is the president of the United Steel Workers Atomic Energy Workers Council. Jim, thanks so much for your time. I feel the last 20, 30 years, We've been exporting the so-called dirty jobs of mining and energy production abroad. And then we, to places where we can outsource the pollution and we deindustrialize our country and then we import the finished products. Yet to actually create surplus value, we need to create the products here and we need a manufacturing base, an industrial base, and we need an energy base. And nuclear has its issues, but at the same time, it has the greatest density of energy source compared to anything. And when you start looking at wind and solar, it's so diffuse, it's intermittent. You can't really have an industrial base of manufacturing based on wind and solar. And it's going to need to be coal. It's going to need to be hydro. It's going to need to be nuclear. Could you just talk a little bit about what it means to 
to be working in these industries that are so necessary. I totally agree with your belief and position on that. There is our nation's nuclear needs. At one time, the United States had 80% of the contracts worldwide for enriched uranium. So currently, all almost all our uranium used in the U.S. commercial reactors is imported. And, and as you were saying, we need to get that back. Yeah, and they, these sites across the nation, they have spent nuclear fuel that is sitting there and being stored. Uh, in the Carter, during the Carter administration, there was a uh, program where we would build a reprocessing facility, much like the one at The Hague. And there they take all of their waste, they feed it into this reactor processing system, 95% of it is converted to electricity. The other 5% is vitrified in glass and then stored in glass containers in the ground where it doesn't pose a hazard. Because of proliferation concerns, the Carter administration said we're not going to build it. We could have the one at the Hague employed 6,000 people and converts all of that waste into usable energy. And yeah, we're, we've got a lot of education to do to people in our nation and to the legislatures to say, look, we can't get, especially when you're talking EV, electrical vehicles, replace the gas or carbon producing vehicles that you and I drive every day. We can't get to that point because currently we can't supply our electrical demand that people need in their homes today. And just uh, some side notes for the audience too. A lot of the uranium waste from a pressurized light water reactor, there's still 95% of fissionable fissionable material in it. And if you put it into a breeder reactor, it can actually use that for additional fuel. And we're seeing it, we're seeing some different types of nuclear reactors like the CANDU reactor in Canada as well that is very effective. For the audience, as a union worker in these plants, could you talk a bit about just whether they were high paid with pensions, like that they were the workers taking care of at least because they're union unionized and have you seen non-union plants that maybe not taking but care of the workers? They were. They certainly were. They, these provided good family sustaining wages with good benefits. And a lot of people put the kids through college, bought a home, paid it off. And at that, during the 60s through the 80s, it was one of the high, highest paying jobs in the regions where these plants are located. And so when you shut one of those down, that depresses not only the immediate economy, the tax base and everything else, but it, that wage rate turns over six times within a local community. And you can't go out on the street today and find a job available that can provide that type of wages and benefits to workers. Jim Key, uh, president of the United Steel Workers Atomic Energy Workers Council, thank you for your time and everything you're doing. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me to participate in your podcast. Bienvenidos. Welcome to El Cafecito del Día. 
brought to you by the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement. Our conversations are inspired by the moments of togetherness that Nuestra Comunidad shares over un cafecito. My name is Arena Romero, and today I'll be sharing this cafecito with Evelyn Urrutia, Executive Director at Tenants and Workers United. Welcome to El Cafecito del Día, Evelyn. Thank you for being here. Can you share what Tenants and Workers United does and updates on your latest campaigns? Yeah, thank you for the invitation and the opportunity. We at Tenants and Workers United, what we do is educate our community. We organize and we do leadership development. Basically, we go into communities. We find out if those families have any issue, what kind of issues they have. And we start working with them to understand how that relates to others in their community. So trying to create awareness is really important, but also at the same time, finding people who are willing to work and move forward any type of changes they want to create in their community. Some of the campaigns that we're working right now is around education justice, and it's more with youth in the city of Alexandria. The other one is around housing, access, affordable housing. is a big problem in Northern Virginia not just because of the impact of the pandemic, because previous to the pandemic, families were already in deficit of deep, deep affordable housing and what the housing should look like, right? But that issue is not just only in Alexandria, but it's also everywhere in the whole country, in the whole state, in every city. So right now we're working in Alexandria City, Fairfax County, and also Prince William County. So it's really focusing around housing. We work on issues like immigration. We do have a campaign in Alexandria around immigration and how eyes play a role in an agreement that the city has. So that's the three areas right now that we're working on. And health access is one of our top priority too, because a lot of the families that we're working with are without insurance. And that's a big issue in our community. What work does Tenants and Workers United do to fight for Northern Virginia residents and workers? And how did you adapt to the challenges that the ongoing pandemic has highlighted? Yeah, some of the work that we're doing right now is organizing around issues that people care. Housing is one of the big issues. We're trying to secure deep affordable housing, but it's not just only the creation of those units, but also programs that really stay longer than just the creation of the units. If we create affordable housing, that will need a support moving forward in years to come. What we're doing is organizing the community and meeting with city council, meeting with people who are empowered, whether it's at the county level or at the city level, to find out how we can get more resources to deep affordable housing. And when we talk about deep affordable housing, we want to be clear, right? We want to have deep affordable housing for families who earn less than 60% of the median income. Most of our families are around 40% of the median income and below. And right now, every city, every county, even though at the state level, we're looking a lot affordable housing at 60% of the median income, which does not include our families, the one that we work with. So our work really look like empowering our people and definitely meeting with people who are taking decisions around those issues, advocating for funding and advocating for policies that they should be changing or policies that they should be having in place in order to protect those families. Black and brown residents in the DMV are continuously displaced due to the rising cost of housing. Are there any current policies in place to support residents? And what are the people on the ground advocating for to support these residents? We can say there are many policies. The question would be, are they really working toward protecting our people? What we see in the communities is that there is not such protection. When we talk about rent increase and we know that the landlord have all this power in their hands to do whatever they want in their buildings and with those families, it's definitely not a good thing. Yes, there are some things that can be done and some things that we would like, especially in the city of Alexandria, if we were focusing on that for a minute. There is a community called Arlanger Shirilawa, right? The city 
just approved a development plan last year in December. So what we are doing is we want the city to really create a Atlanta neighborhood rent preference policy. What that will do is that if there are units available, people who already live in that community will be able to sign up for those units and they will be priority. But if we don't have that type of policy in areas like Arlandria, for example, what we're creating is displacement in one way or another because we're creating housing, but housing for whom? And also when we're focusing on expensive housing, right? Like 60% of the media income, for example, that's not for our people. Our people, most of them make less than $40,000, $50,000 a year. So when we're creating housing for people who earn sixty. that's basically displacement. And that's what is happening uh, everywhere around. We're really focusing on what we call affordable housing, 60% of the median income, but that's not for the people who work at restaurants, at the cleaning industry, the construction industry, the ones who do childcare. They won't have no place to live in those cities on those counties that we're working on it right now. Thank you for joining us. To find out more information about Tenants and Workers United, you can visit their website at tenantsandworkers.org. LACLA is committed to supporting workers in their fight for rights and justice, including housing justice. Welcome to another episode of Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, along with the tired hands of Troy Eller English. Now. She was explaining earlier to me why her hands are tired. What you been doing, Troy? Uh, I've been scraping off a ridiculous amount of glue off of our hardwood floor because our previous owners were jerks. (laughs) Not jerks. No, they were. No, they were? Okay, fine. (laughs) So you've been doing housing stuff for your days off. This this episode is not all about Troy scraping glue, and we will not be talking about glue. But this episode, we're going to be talking about housing. Now, during the 1930s, the federal government created the Federal Housing Administration, which essentially was created to help people buy a house during the Great Depression, and it worked very well. Over the years, millions were able to buy homes and live that American dream. It worked so well, even to this day, it's still working. But the horrible part is that it was created to exclude African Americans from the program. The FHA created redlining. And for new development communities? Now, this leads us to our interview with Emma Monier. Emma is a PhD candidate in NYU's history program. She is a graduate from the University of Michigan with a BA in Women's and Gender Studies and Political Science. And she wrote an article about her hometown of Gross Point, Michigan, a neighborhood adjacent to Detroit. And her article is called A Most Conscientious and Considerate Method, Residential Segregation and Integrationist Activism in Gross Point, Michigan, 1960 to 1970, in the Journal of Urban History in January 2022. Emma, welcome to Tales for the Ruther Library. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm happy to be here. We're glad to have you. So your article grabbed my attention. It's excellent. Um, and for those who don't live in Detroit, mm-hmm. okay, you talk about a neighborhood area called Rose Point. Now, anybody mm-hmm. who doesn't grow up here doesn't know it. They've, they've watched the movie, mm-hmm. Gross Point Blank. They've read the book, Middlesex, which is a great book, people. Mm-hmm. So can you describe the enclave of gross points and how does it fit into what you called bourgeois utopias, which I love that statement. Yes. Well, I wish it was mine, but unfortunately it's not. That term belongs to the historian Robert Fishman, uh, who was looking at 18th century London suburbs. Um, so he's kind of writing about what 
or rather how suburbs are defined by exclusion. So whether that's in terms of industry or most types of commerce or excluding lower class residents, and here in the US I would say that's also um, relevant to race as it is in the UK now. Um, but So that's his term, but I do think Gross Point is quite emblematic of that. So Gross Point was founded as a series of villages, um, mainly in the late 1880s through the early 1900s, and later incorporated as a city. Um, I'm going to be using the term Gross Point to refer to all five points. So it's made up of five smaller townships, the city, so Gross Point City, Gross Point Farms, the park, the shores, and the woods. And again, I'll just use Gross Point kind of collectively Absolutely, throughout. Yeah. Um, and so it, is a, it, is, it covers only about 10 square miles um, outside of Detroit. Um, it's long been kind of inhabited by auto executives and car money, like not surprisingly, given its relationship to the city. Um, and it's home to about 50,000 people. So a very um, emblematic, stereotypical um, suburb, I would say, in a lot of ways, if that paints an adequate picture. It does. Absolutely. It cool. is um, a suburb of Detroit that you could definitely see the divide line. For sure. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now we're talking about, now we know about redlining. We know about all the government issues that were happening with housing throughout the, from the 30s, 40s, 50s, mm -hmm. on up to the current day. Even. But Gross Point had something a little different. Yes. And of course, they had to call it the point system. Mm -hmm. So what, what, did it entail, what was entailed with this? Yeah. So Gross Point, like Detroit, was redlined. So that system certainly existed in the 1930s and 40s um, as a result of the Homeowners Loan Corporation. Um, and if you look at that map, it's actually quite interesting because Gross Point is one of the few areas graded with A's and B's, which are the highest ranked. And it's kind of surrounded by a sea of C's and D's in Detroit and elsewhere. So that kind of template of redlining still existed in Gross Point. But the point system, as you mentioned, um, is kind of a separate additional system that was instituted in 1945 uh, by the Gross Point Property Owners Association and the Gross Point Brokers Association. So it's kind of its own separate deal that operated similar to redlining, but differently. So um, what happened was if someone was interested in buying a home in Gross Point, and they seemed like maybe they didn't quite meet quote unquote community standards, a realtor would hire a private detective who would then look into um, that person's uh, family history, their employment history, et cetera. And the idea was that a perfect score was 100 points. If you were Polish, you needed 50 to 55 points to qualify. If you were Irish, 55. Italians, Greeks, Spanish, and Lebanese needed 75. And here I'm using terms of the time that I would not use myself today. Absolutely, of course. And uh, Jewish people needed 85 points, and they also had a separate blue form that they filled out for Jewish homeowners. So that's kind of the idea. And so how did people get to this 50, 75, however many points were required? Um, so the realtors and the private detectives ranked people based on Americanness first. So that had to do with descent, nativity, whether or not their names were quote unquote typically American, uh, whether their way of living was American. And obviously this is subjective, right? Like there are certain things that defined that in 1950, let's say, that certainly wouldn't qualify now. Um, so in addition to that, they were also graded on their accent and how pronounced it was, <laughs> if any, uh, their grammar. So here they're obviously coding for education in some ways. Uh, their manner of dress, 
uh, whether or not the head of household, in most cases, or all cases probably, um, the husband's job, how that was held in esteem. Um, they were explicitly graded on the husband and wife's degree of education and also their family structure. So um, let's say if, uh, if the wife's mother was living in the home, she would also be evaluated. Um, and so this was relevant. Obviously, the groups I listed are um, what were called white ethnics at the time. So today, we don't really like identify people racially as Irish, Italian, Greek, et cetera. Um, it's just white. But this was really kind of a moment of race making mm -hmm. uh, in American history. So I kind of argue that the point system was a way for white ethnics to gain access to whiteness vis-a-vis -vis homeownership. Of course. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and importantly here, um, so I did not mention um, black homeowners or Asian homeowners who were explicitly um, excluded. So there was no way for them to be admitted to buy a home in Gross Point. Um, so that's kind of how the ranking system worked. Right. It right. did have some teeth. Um, so if realtors... Um, did sell to someone who didn't meet their standards, they would lose their commission and risk expulsion. Um, <laughs> if someone didn't qualify, if a homeowner didn't qualify, their name would be circulated among realtors locally so that they knew not to sell to them. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's kind of how it worked. Um, so I would say it is, uh, in a, like, it is beyond redlining. It is more precise. Uh, it is a way to tailor to specific community standards. Um, in a way that's kind of more discerning and more discriminatory than redlining. Yes, it is. Absolutely. This mm -hmm. is shocking. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Um, this was a great conversation. Troy learned a lot, which we always <laughs> like. But thank you so much. Yeah. Happy to be here. Thanks again for having me. Well, that's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them. Use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Mel Smith and Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. Before we go, take just a second to help us build some sonic solidarity by sharing this show. Just click on the share button. Thanks very much. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. <laughs>